Hello and welcome to the special edition of The Stack. This time we'll look at some of the best interviews we did in 2021. Oh, and by the way, happy Christmas to you. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this year, Brazilian daily Folha de São Paulo celebrated 100 years. It's been my paper of choice from a young age. Earlier this year, I spoke with Sérgio Dávila, Folha's editor-in-chief. It's a celebration, you're right about that, but it's, a, it's been a modest celebration, as it, it is our tradition in Folha, and in face of these catastrophic times that we are living. Uh, the pandemic has taught us a, a few lessons and a couple of them has to do with, with professional journalism and, and the journalism that we do at Folha. One is that journalism is made by people, not places. We have now 300 reporters working from home, people who put the newspaper to bed, but also feed the website, make videos, podcasts, newsletters, uh, photos. The other lesson is that people value professional journalism when information is a matter of life and death, as it is right now. Our record, we are experiencing record in audience uh, recently, Foil and other uh, media outlets. It's, I think this is a proof of that. And finally, in a very competitive environment such as the, the Brazilian media, we, we found common ground to, to build a consortium of, of data regarding COVID-19 in the face of, of the government's refusal to, to release timely and accurate numbers. None of that would happen uh, if, if it wasn't uh, for a, uh, an outlet such as Folha and if it wasn't established outlet such as Folha. We are in this business for a hundred years. This, this matters in a time like this. Now, as, as for the celebration, uh, bear in mind that it's very difficult for an ordinary business to, to survive for a hundred years in, in Brazil. Even more difficult if you are a newspaper and almost a personal offense if you do the type of journalism that we try to do at Folha. Even though uh, here we are and, and we are aiming for that 200 year celebration. Well, and I've been a, a Folha reader since I am a kid. And, and, and you have a very long experience yourself with Folha de São Paulo. Can you tell us when did you start working there? Because you've done quite a lot of jobs. You've covered, you know, uh, you, you were kind of a foreign correspondent as well, among other things. Yeah, I've been with Folha for a quarter of, of its century. Uh, I started as a reporter. Then I was uh, the editor of our cultural section that it's called Ilustrada, which means illustrated. Then a correspondent in the US for a decade from 2000 to 2010. In, in that period of time, I, I covered important events such as 9-11, Bush and Obama's elections, the rise of social media companies, especially when I was a Knight Fellow at Stanford University and the start of the Tea Party mentality that led to Trump, Bolsonaro and others. Uh, like them uh, rise to, to power. In this period of time, I covered uh, the Iraqi war as, as well. I was the only Brazilian reporter in Baghdad when the war started. And uh, I stayed there for 35 days with my 
fellow uh, photographer Juca Varela, we were the only two Brazilians covering uh, the event in Baghdad. And it was a very uh, defining moment for me in terms of uh, journalism. And in 2010, I came back to, to Brazil to become the executive editor for Folha. In that position, I helped to transform the, the newsroom into a digital first newsroom, which we are uh, right now. And in 2019, I, uh, a few months after the devastating for me, uh, devastating loss of Otavio Frias Filho, I became editor-in-chief of, of the newspaper. I am the first professional journalism to hold this job in 35 years. So it is a big thing for me and it's been half of my life uh, I spent in, in the, this newspaper. And you mentioned there kind of digital first and everything. And one thing to note is that I think Folha de São Paulo was one of the first Brazilian newspapers as well, you know, to have a paywall and to invest a little bit more on the digital side of things, how important it is. You, you reach quite a big audience, someone that perhaps never read, you know, the printed issue, for example. Folha was the first big newspaper in Brazil to have a, a meter paywall. That was in 2012. And we, we have a, a few milestones in this, in this field. Uh, since then, we always uh, been trying to, to be ahead of innovations. So Folha was the first one to, to have a native uh, application app. We, we were the first and so far the only one, I have to tell you, to leave uh, our page in Facebook. Now you have to bear in mind that we left Facebook before it was cool to do so. Uh, back then we, we were very criticized by our, our peers and, and people outside the business for doing so. But our point was uh, Facebook's algorithm is designed to give more views to fake news than to real news. So we thought that a newspaper such as Folha had no business being in that environment. We lost by then 15% of our audience in, in the months following that decision. But now we are 15% bigger than before that decision. So it paid to do so. And in the last years, years we also turned the key to become a digital first newspapers. We think that the business model heavily based on digital subscriptions will become the business model of our industry in years to come. But at the same time, Sergio, I don't know, I'm, I'm quite old fashioned at times. I, I still, every time I go to Brazil, I love buying the printed issue. So what's the plan with the printed issue? Is it still, is there still a market for some of the readers? You know, for example, the Sunday edition of Folha de São Paulo, I think it's lovely with all the supplements and everything. Yeah, you and I are, are both uh, the same in this aspect. I love the, the print edition as well. In, in terms of uh, revenue and prestige, yes, our, our print edition still have an important role, especially with the sources. That's, uh, that's very curious. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but here it's, it's true. In April last year, I was telling you, we had a record audience of 74 million unique visitors in our website. It's more than half of Brazilian internet even though most sources still ask, will this story be on print as well? <laughs> so print is, it still has that tactful pleasure, much like the book. It is what Umberto Eco used to call a perfect object, something that doesn't need technological improvement. He, Umberto Eco, the, the Italian writer, used to call books and tables perfect objects. And I think, uh, Newspaper uh, is a perfect uh, object as well. That was Sergio Davila, 
Editor-in-Chief of Folha de São Paulo. Moving on now to another celebratory item, this time looking at the history of iconic magazine Ebony, the title that was originally modeled in Life magazine and covered black America since 1945. I spoke with Lavelle Lavette, president and publisher at Ebony magazine and also author of Ebony, covering black America. I don't remember life without Ebony. You know, it's 75 years old. So Ebony was a part of not only my life, but my, my mother, my father, even my grandmother. You know, so Ebony has been a part of the family. It's been a part of our family uh, for me day one. And um, I can remember having Ebony on the coffee table. I can remember going to, um, you know, the beauty shop and having, you know, Ebony and Jet, everyone while they're waiting, you know, to get their hair done, everybody's reading an Ebony or a Jet. And um, it's a collectible. It was, it, it wasn't, it was a magazine that you didn't just pick up, read and toss it away. You kept it, you know, and the covers, you kept it because of the covers as well. I mean, the content in the magazine, of course, is riveting and covering all things Black America, but uh, the covers, initially as a kid attracted me, you know, to the magazine. And then of course, exploring what was in it further uh, cemented my love for Ebony. Yeah. And I love, you know, I was reading uh, at the preface of the book as well, saying that the Ebony was kind of based a little bit on Life magazine, but they wanted to be the Life magazine for Black America. And I think they managed that because the topics covered, I mean, it goes from cultural aspects to sports to civil rights politics it was generally like the whole life you know of someone right, right. yeah that's that's pretty much as we were looking at how we're going to title this you know we started out well we we're celebrating 75 years so you know ebony 75 but when you know delving into the archives and really looking at what ebony covered you know, because at a glance, people might think, if you're not familiar, but I don't know who's not familiar with Ebony, that, oh, it's entertainment, it's lifestyle, but it's love and family, it's music, it's our art. So it covered everything, hence Ebony covering Black America. So yes, Ebony is more than a magazine. Like I said, Ebony was our Facebook, <laughs> our Instagram. <laughs> This is where we got our information from. And not just the famous, but people that you should know about. People, doctors, uh, people of high rankings in the military, people in medicine, teachers, educators, uh, stories about you know, the plight of not just Black America, but our educational system, what's happening with youth, so yeah, Ebony covered everything and Ebony continues to cover everything. Well, talking about continuing to cover everything, I think because of the historical importance of Ebony, you've been having quite a busy week. I mean, you're, you're there in Washington, DC. Tell us a bit more about the events uh, celebrating around the release of the book as well. And, right. and of course we have to add, it's been great news as well with the George Floyd case. I, I just looked at your website, of course. Uh, there's plenty of coverage in there as well. Right, right. So I'm here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, 
celebrating the book, celebrating 75 years of Ebony with the Congressional Black Caucus. We partnered, Ebony Magazine Publishing, our division, we partnered with the National Urban League and a few corporations to launch, kick off the book in our nation's capital, but also looking at the importance of this book, some of our legislators got involved because they were, Ebony has been there everything, you know, speaking with um, elected officials and congressmen, they were just so happy. Our turnout, we had all of the leadership and then some at our kickoff celebration on yesterday, uh, just a few feet away from the Capitol. And so what we're doing is we are embarking on a, what started out to be a 10 city tour, but looks like it might be a 20 city tour um, where we're not just coming into a city and talking about the book. We actually have sponsors that are making the book available. They're buying the book and they're donating the book to public school systems, to public libraries and to community centers. And so, in DC, we're just, you know, over the moon that Amplify Education and the Lorna Johnson Foundation joined us in, you know, purchasing these books and making sure through the Urban League that they're getting in the hands of our youth. And so part of our mission with this tour is to connect, connect gaps, right? Connect generations, right? You know, this is history. And so we want our young people to know that, to understand that, that they are standing on the shoulders of giants, that as Black Americans, we accomplished a great deal. We've, we've had our fights. We still continue to fight for equal justice and to be treated equally for all people, not just Black America, white America, all people from all walks of life, basically. And so with this tour, we're using this book as a conduit to start conversations around the contributions that we've made, looking at where we are now, looking at the now, how can we use our history to make our now better? You know, how can we use our history to ensure that our future is better? And so the response has been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive to this book and the conversations that it's generated. I was at dinner last night with a group of congressional uh, members of congressional staff in their 20s and 30s. And it's just amazing how enthused and just so excited about this book and the conversations that, that were sparked because of this book. You know, we got together because of this book. And so this book is, is a bridge. And I think it's a bridge that I don't, I, I don't see an ending. I see that this book will be on the coffee tables of generations to come. So, you know, we're beyond the moon about it. And, and I gotta be honest, uh, Lavelle, you know, I knew about Ebony, but I didn't know about the, the full history. And, and I was so surprised looking at the covers from the forties and fifties. I mean, how empowering they were in a way. I mean, we do talk about the representation of the black community, but at that time it must have been something so unusual right because uh, of course there was even more restrictions against the black community at the time but it was a celebration of black success on a time that it was quite difficult to do that mm -hmm. my mother tells me when she was a little girl that when the ebony 
came into the house, it was a major event. And she didn't always have a subscription to it because they, um, you know, I'm say poor, pretty much. Yeah, they were poor. So, you know, they couldn't afford, um, you know, some of the pleasures of, you know, having magazine subscriptions. So they would huddle with their friends who, I think it was uh, one of her good friends, a couple of houses down from her, they had a subscription to Ebony Magazine. And so that was one of the most popular girls in school because when that magazine, you know, came in, they all huddled around it and even tore out some of the pictures and got in trouble for doing that, you know, tearing out some of the pictures of some of their um, favorite events or celebs or whatever was covered to put on their walls and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, um, it's meant the world. I mean, it's, it's inspired so many people, you know, it told them back then doing Jim Crow and, you know, the segregation that, you know, no, we are a people, we are uh, worthy, and we are doing uh, phenomenal things. And it has helped to build so many Black Americans, um, because in that time, all you saw was the suppression, you know? And, and when Mr. Johnson created this magazine, and he modeled it off of Life magazine, he wanted to show us in bright, bold colors. He wanted to show the positive things that we were doing, but also, you know, not turn a blind eye to all of the horrible things that was happening to us as Black Americans. That's why they covered the Emmett Till uh, funeral and open casket and showed that to the world, the March on Washington the bus boycott, you know, so they, they were our, our information to the world, our, our connection to each other was done through Ebony and Jet magazine. That was Lavelle Lavat, and the book Ebony, Covering Black America, is out now. Finally, on today's show, one of my favorite interviews of the year, iconic astrologer Susan Miller. What a delight it was to speak with her. We spoke astrology in print and her latest projects. I think it's fueled by social media. You know, in the past, people would read astrology, but they wouldn't talk about it because there was no social media. And it's accessible. You don't have to go to a bookstore to get a book or go to a newsstand to get an astrology magazine. You know, I have 40% male readers, very high for my genre, but that's because I... I think I write about things that men are interested in, mortgages, romance, career, money, but women are too. <laughs> and I'm, when I write, I'm very non-gender specific, you know, so I, I never want a man to come into the column feeling, this is a girl's room, what am I doing here? No, and I am super feminine, but I keep the fluff factor down, <laughs> I, you know, very consciously to include men because they keep me honest. They think differently. They don't want to be told what to do. And I agree. They want to come to their own conclusions. So I have to lay it out almost like a lawyer would because I'm always imagining the readers saying, why should I believe you? Why does it matter? Like they're shrugging their shoulders. Why should I believe you? 
So that's why I write 40,000 words a month divided by 12 signs. I have to back up the reasons I'm telling you what I am. <laughs> that, that's a lot of words. I mean, it, it must be, uh, my God, you must be tired of it, but you still, of course, clearly have the passion for it, right? I do. I, I love doing it because every month is a new puzzle. Like sometimes Courtney will say, why are you staring at your computer and not writing? I said, well, I'm thinking about Scorpio. They're, they should be moving house if they want to. I mean, this is the best in 12 years, but they also have some cross currents going on. So I have to get them out of the briar patch. <laughs> I don't just say some difficult things are coming. I have to show you the way out of the maze. You know, I, it's, uh, it's not okay to just say, something is challenging. I have to offer solutions or what good am I? You know, that's how I feel. <laughs> and Susan, just a little bit before we started the interview, it's funny, I was just browsing through Astrology Zone, uh, your website, <laughs> and I was looking at Gemini, man. And apparently it says that they work kind of in publishing or media and they wear tropical <laughs> shirts. And here I am, <laughs> you know, a man working in journalism, wearing a tropical shirt. I promise you it was a coincidence, right? <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Gemini is the scribe of the Zodiac. Uh, in ancient days, the king would call on Geminis to write on the clay tablets the laws of the land, because if it wasn't a Gemini, no one knew how to follow the law. Gemini writes clearly, communicates brilliantly. So they are the best. They are also Virgo's good, but they make even better editors. They see every comma, every dot, and they're also brilliant at writing code where every little, every little character counts. So if someone says to me they want to be an editor or a writer, if they don't have some Gemini or Virgo, I say, well, let's see what else you could do also. <laughs> you know, you could, they could probably go into publishing, but it's going to be easier if they have some Gemini or Virgo. Sagittarius is as a great publisher. They hold the keys to the libraries of the world. And when I wrote my first book, my publisher said, Susan, um, how many verified sources do you have for each fact? I said, one, I have them all on, on index cards. And she said, no, you have to have three. I said, oh, this is, oh, okay. She said, go back and give me three for every fact you have in your book. And I worked and worked and worked, and there were still some where I couldn't get three. Uh, so someone, bless their hearts, told me, if you call USA Today newspaper, they have a research department that will look up things for you at $2 a fact. Well, that was 20 years ago. Maybe it's more now, <laughs> but it certainly helped me. So I did get the three because she said someday someone may take your book off a library shelf and work from it. You have to be sure it's accurate. So Sagittarius's job is accuracy and really putting it in a place where others can access it. What's your sign actually, Susan? Sorry. Oh, I no, I say i can't say then people oh. there's 12 birthdays out there no i i want to keep the spotlight on the reader you know it's almost like a you go to a doctor and they start talking about their own illness that's like terrible you know? so i don't want to talk about myself in this world everything is self 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 so i'm not 
I'm not that girl. Listen, that, that's <laughs> that's nice to keep it as a mystery in a way. Susan, your job as an astrologer, what do you think? Because I know people, of course, they can study astrology and everything. But there's also something that makes you an expert that you can't explain, right? Or because I'm sure even if you become an academic, that doesn't mean that you're going to be good at like you are, for example. There are some things you can't explain, but I can tell someone that they're accident prone and that it probably wouldn't be the best time to go bungee jumping or <laughs> hang gliding. But, you know, things always work out. Well, not always. Sometimes work out in a way that you don't expect. Let me give you an example. You know, I was born with a terrible birth defect. You know that, right? <laughs> That's what led me into astrology. I grew up in hospitals, but I was an agent for commercial photographers and my own business. I was extremely successful. And I saw a grouping of planets and an eclipse, which is always big, coming up in my eighth house. And I thought, wow, I'm going to make a really big sale like six figures well that weekend I broke my leg and it was the third time I had broken the thigh bone and they found out I was born without any marrow in that and it's so painful when you break your thigh bone I, it's just blinding pain and uh, they went in and I died on the table but I came out of it <laughs> obviously <laughs> I had a, a great doctor here in New York but uh, the money that I saw coming in was from my, my health insurance. Bless their hearts, they paid for everything. And it was in, you know, into six figures, you know, because I was in the hospital, I was in the ICU for two weeks. And, and then I had to stay home for a full year because they were terrified if I ever broke it again, they could never go into that leg again. It was just too dangerous. And I have something so rare that there's, only one book on the subject and, and there's no name for it. It's Venus Anomaly. It's funny, I would have an illness with the name Venus in it, <laughs> exactly. which refers to veins and, and arteries. But, um, you know, that house uh, it rules commissions, money that comes in, inheritance, uh, prize winnings, insurance payouts. But I thought, well, because I work on commission, I'll get a big sale and I should work extra hard. And it worked out differently, not the way I wanted to. And I'm such an optimist. I always see the bright side of everything. You know? So that was a bit of a shock, but you can always make something work for you. Even if you've been hit with something really awful, because I had to stay in the house for a year and not once go downstairs, not at all. I, my two children were still living here and my mother was still alive and she was cooking for them. And I thought, well, I need a column in an American magazine where I can pay the rent because my ex-husband said, don't look at me, you know, and I, okay, uh, okay. You know, we were good friends, but he just, the money part was never there. So I, uh, I asked my mother to get a whole pile of magazines and one of them, McCall's magazine had a column. So I, I didn't know which editor to call, but one of them's name was Amy, Amy Bingham. And I thought, oh, I'll go from A to B with Amy Bingham. So I called her up and I said, I don't know who handles astrology. She said, I do. And I said, well, I, I know you have a writer, but maybe that you love, 
maybe I could write a cover story if she gets busy, is writing a book or something. She said, who says I'm happy with her? She said, send me your clips. And suddenly I had a regular column in McCall's magazine, which was a huge magazine before it folded uh, when it folded right after the year 2000 because I wrote a big cover story uh, for for the the next 10 years they asked me to write about which was a real daunting project but they they put a booklet in there and there were 32 pages and it was written on very very thin paper printed so um you know I had and and it, it covered my rent and I could also pay the school tuition for my children so you can figure things out and sometimes when you get a kick in the pants uh, from the universe you you can find a way to go up higher to become more resourceful and more energetic and and try something new because you don't have a choice <laughs> that was susan miller there next week we'll be back with more highlights from the stack in 2021 that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And meanwhile, you can listen again to The Stack at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.